Open up your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to be in Psalm 119 today. Psalm 119. Psalms is right in the middle of your Old Testament. It's Memorial Day weekend this week, this weekend, and so we're taking a bit of a break from our regular study in Acts. We're uh, right at Acts chapter 11 and 12 right now, and so we're taking a one-week break. We're jumping into Psalm 119. Uh, and today's a bit of a special day for us. Not only did we commission the Gehring family, uh, which is a very special day in the life of a church when you're sending off missionaries, but I will be tag-teaming this sermon today with one of our elders, Darren Poon. Uh, Darren Poon serves as an elder here at Park South Loop alongside myself and Sincer Jacob. Uh, Sincer has opened up the Word of God up here on occasion for you before, but this is Darren's first time preaching from this pulpit, and so we're excited to have him open up the Word of God with us. Uh, Darren and his wife, Kira, uh, and their lovely family, and I just love this family so much. Uh, this uh, Darren stepping into the role of elder, he stepped in, what was it? Was it a year ago or so, Darren? Stepped into the role of elder about a year ago. Uh, I've said this often about the two men I get to uh, serve alongside as elders in this church, that those two men have been eldering before they were elders. Uh, What I mean by that is they were the type of men that I saw investing in this church, demonstrating the qualities and the qualifications that 1 Timothy chapter 3 says must be true of elders uh, well in advance before we ever tap them on the shoulder to be an elder. And just to give you a little overview, the role of elder, what, what do elders do? Elders are in charge of, in a, in a peculiar and unique way to a church family, leading the church. And there's kind of the three Ds that I often talk about, uh, doctrine, discipline, and direction. And I oftentimes add a fourth one in there, which is defense. Doctrinally, elders are in charge of guarding the word of God, guarding the word of God from any number of false ideas or philosophies that might come in from outside, pressuring us to stray our beliefs into a direction that is not biblically true. Elders are responsible for guarding, protecting the word of God. Discipline, that is doctrine. Discipline is caring for the flock. When a, she- when a member of the church is stepping in or we see an area of their life that's just filled with brokenness and we're concerned for them, where discipline might be needed or correction is needed or shepherding love is needed, elders step in and care for the, the flock. And then uh, direction. Where are we going? What, what, what are the movements of the spirit we see taking place? What are the ministries God's asking us to courageously step out and begin? Elders are responsible for some of these things. And, and the work of an elder, first and foremost, is always sacrificial servanthood. And so elders don't lead the same way a CEO of an organization might lead where they're meeting in boardrooms and they're kind of making these definitive directions. No, that's not it. An elder's responsibility is to lead like Christ by washing the feet of the flock. And, and I just want to say, Darren and Sincer, it has been a privilege to serve alongside you as I watched you care for the flock of God among you, uh, exercising oversight the way scriptures call us to. You guys have done a phenomenal job, and I regularly find myself uh, saying these words. I'm so glad that God's design is that there's multiple people to lead the church, because if it were all up to me, we'd be in a lot of trouble. (laughs) God has given a great plurality of elders, not only at Park South Loop, but into the entire body, and I'm very grateful for these men. Our passage for today is Psalm 119, verses 17 through 22. If you don't know Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, the longest psalm in the entire Psalter in the Old Testament. And the, the psalm, if you open it up and you have it open, what you'll notice is that it's broken into different stanzas, and so it's kind of a paragraph, then a paragraph, then a paragraph. And if you look above this first paragraph, there's a Hebrew term there that reads Aleph. And then over the next one is Bet, and then Gimel, and then Dalit, and then He. That's the Hebrew alphabet. 
Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, He. So what, what this is, is it, the whole psalm is a Hebrew acrostic poem. It, it, the first word, Aleph, is the Hebrew equivalent of A, and then B, and then C, and then D. And each of the first words in each of the paragraphs of each stanza begins with that next letter. And the reason it does that, the original psalm was written in Hebrew. And so what happened is little Hebrew children would be able to memorize it. It's kind of like if we were memorizing a poem in English that every next line started with the next letter in the alphabet. As a child, that would be a helpful way to memorize it. Well, it's the same thing with Psalm 119. And children would have been required to learn all of Psalm 119. Now, with that in mind, I want you to flip the page and look at how long Psalm 119 is. Then flip the page again. Then flip the page again. And then, if you're in the same Bible as me, again. Okay, let me say it again. Hebrew children would have memorized this psalm. There's something very important about memorization. When you memorize scripture, what's happening is that you are forming deep, deep, long-term memories in your mind, in your actual brain, the way the brain works. God's very wise in doing this. You're forming these memories of words that are working their way into your long-term memory. And when ideas work their way into your long-term memory, they filter their, their way down into your heart in a way that your heart begins manifesting the reality of the words in your subconscious. Meaning while you're not even thinking about it. Right? It's not just the frontal memories of, okay, I'm actively thinking about these words. When you memorize something, you work it so deep into your mind that now your life is reproducing the very words of what you've memorized, even when you're not trying to. Memorization is very important. We would do well to memorize scripture like this again. Uh, a few years ago, I took it on, on myself to try to memorize this psalm. I made it about a third of the way through. And uh, I have lost track, but as I've been preparing for this sermon, I thought maybe I need to pick this up again. And I'll tell you, it was very good for my soul. It took me almost a year to get a third of the way through it. And so it was every morning just repeating a little bit more to myself. Church, I want to encourage you. You can do this. It is a good exercise for your soul to slow down and try to take some large chunks of Scripture in. What is Psalm 119 about? There's one theme that runs all the way through Psalm 119. God's word as the foundation for your life. Literally every verse has some reference to God's word, God decrees, God's uh, statutes, his commandments, his law. The whole thing is saying, if you're going to follow God, the only way to live your life is by fixating yourself on God's word. You need, you need God's word. Every time you open your eyes and you're trying to make a decision, go back to God's word. Whatever comes in your life, you bring it back to God's word. It's the basis of your life. If you don't have this as a basis, you have something else as a basis, and that is like shifting sand. And so we not only need this as our basis, but we need it as our joy, as the place where we find abundance in life. You go back to the Word of God in every decision, in every painful moment, every moment of grief, in every moment of uh, exaltation, in everything you do, the Word of God provides the standard by which you look out on life and you say, I know where I'm going, I'm in steady ground. That's Psalm 119. More than any other chapter in the whole Bible, Psalm 119 drives into you the Word of God. Now, we're going to take a small section of it, verses 17 through 32. And particularly today, the theme is how to suffer well by clinging to God's Word. That's today's theme. How to suffer well by clinging to God's Word. Let me read to us our passage, verses 17 through 32. Deal bountifully with your servant, 
that I might live and keep your word. Open your eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your commandments. I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statues. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. That one has been so meaningful for me. Let me read that verse again. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told them my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. These first three verses, that's our passage for today. First three verses, verses 17 through 20. Uh, what, what that is getting after, if you see those words, it's like a, a quick synopsis of the whole psalm. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. The, the psalmist is saying, look, I cannot move, I cannot understand life, I cannot understand where I'm going if, God, you don't open my eyes to behold joyful, wondrous things that are beyond me. Some of us approach the Word of God almost in a begrudging way, if I can just be honest with us. Some of us have a relationship with the Word of God which is kind of like a legalistic, I know I'm supposed to be in the Word of God, and I think actually the temptation is always there for the people of God to see God's Word like that. There's always that temptation by Satan to say, look, this is this begrudging homework you have to do, which is why the psalmist prays this beautiful thing. No, Lord, open my eyes. See, that's the thing God can do. He can open our eyes to do what? To behold wondrous things out of your law. I want to ask you when, you, when you read God's word, when you open your Bible, do you behold wondrous things out of his law? You see, the soul that is regularly engaged with God's word, that is beholding wondrous things out of his law, when they engage with the Bible, there's this regular habit of reflection where they sit back in this awe state, where you just look at the words themselves and you consider the depth of their meaning, and it's almost like you're seeing behind the words. The, the words have depth to them that need mining. It's like you're digging through and you're trying to understand, and then you found some treasure and you hold it up and you say, that was there the whole time? And you sit back and you observe the wonder of God's word and how profound and meaningful it is. There are endless treasures to be dug up through God's word. Endless minds to be dug through and found the treasures that are underneath it. See, before there was time, there was God. Before there was uh, the laws of gravity and the laws of, the laws of morality, before there was space and molecules, there was God. He existed in all throughout, before there was eternity, because eternity requires time. Before there was even the concept of eternity, the God that would sustain all of creation existed in perfect love and harmony with himself. And that God spun and spoke the wor world into motion, and then he spoke into the world. 
That God who is above everything, who sustains everything, speaks into his creation truth. And if we want to have grounding, we need to listen to his word. You'll notice in in these verses, at four separate points at least, there's actually five or six, but at four very direct moments do we experience suffering. Verse 22, he says, in verse 22, let me read it to us, take away from me scorn and contempt. That means that there's scorn coming at him. There's people who disagree with him, who don't like him. And he says, why should you take it away? Why? What? Because I have kept your testimonies. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me. I don't think it is that this psalmist had uh, literal personal uh, engagements with princes that they were individually plotting against him. I think it was that literally the law of the land was being structured in such a way that this psalmist was actually saying, okay, the, the, the government is against me right now, my, my honest worship of you. And so he says, even then, your servant's going to meditate on your statutes. That's what I do. Notice how he says, there's pain coming to me, but my answer to it is to cling to your word. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Can you imagine the amount of pain that must be in a life for that imagery to come out of your mouth? And then what does he say? Give me life according to your word. See, when you're in that dark place, the thing that gives you life is the rock solidness of God's word. Now, before I bring Darren up here, I want to ask you something. Every one of us lives in the reality of a fallen world. And as we're about to engage on the topic of suffering and clinging to God's word, I want to ask you, what do you have happening in your life that is painful? I need need to give you just a moment of space to bring that to light before the Lord. Sometimes we can come in church and have it all together and get our sermon and never let it penetrate into the reality of our life. There is grief in our life. There is hardship. There's raw, real emotion. Many of you invite me into that with you. I'm so grateful, thinking of the things that are happening this very week, the tears that I've seen from some of you this very week. But every person has some level of reality of sin and hardship in their life. If it's not your direct life, it's someone that you love, that you care for, that has brokenness. What grief are you experiencing today? I want you to actually, in your heart of hearts, kind of lift it up. And and as we go through the rest of this day, I I want that grief, that pain, I want it right, right in the front of your mind. Everything Darren is going to share with you today is relevant for you in your brokenness. It was Sam Storms who says this, joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. Joy is not the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. Christians hold this very unique place in a world full of suffering and brokenness. And and the unique place that the Christian holds is that they walk through every valley, every brokenness, every grief-filled moment of anguish, in the knowledge that they are Christ's and they can never be let go. And and somehow our union with Christ forms a joy in the soul of a believer that no matter what they walk through, there is a confident rooting. It's not a stoicism that says, no, I don't feel pain. I don't cry. I, I I, I don't feel the emotion of this. No, Jesus wept. Christians know how to grieve and feel the pain. We sit in it. And yet in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, 
there is a rock that we cling to that is stable and full of joy. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. How's everyone going? Uh, my computer here decided to restart five minutes before, so please extend a little bit of grace here. Um, so, like Rafe said, I'm an elder here at Park South Loop, and uh, my wife Kira and I have, uh, have had three sons, uh, Oliver, Remy, and Sebastian. We've called Park home since 2010. Um, both Kira and I are architects in the city, and we've been in the South Loop for eight years. Um, we love this church, and if we haven't met you, we look forward to connecting with you. While preparing for this passage this week, I was reminded of why the Psalms isn't just a book of praises. What I deeply connect with in Psalms is that there's this beautiful web of interwoven emotions Imagine one of those rope mesh bridges at playgrounds and each intersection and each knot is an emotion. When a challenging event presses in on the mesh, the tension is felt across many knots and many emotions. Joy, anger, sorrow, and hope in Psalms live often within one or two lines. And as we've just read in Psalms 119, that the keeping of the word, beholding the wondrous things of the word, revealing the word, longing for the word, meditating on the word, all become the deep peers that keep this mesh from collapsing. And we realize there's no other foundation for suffering but God's word. My wife Kira and I met towards the end of college, started our long distance, longish, eight year dating relationship. When we returned to Chicago, we started attending Park Near North and got involved in men's and women's small groups. We got married in 2013 and moved to the South Loop and joined Park South Loop uh, during the launch of Easter 2016. We brought with us our first son, Oliver, who we called Opie. He was five months old at the time, and frankly, he was the easiest baby. I mean, he ate absolutely everything, slept with no problem. Um, at first, as first-time parents, we actually thought it was that easy. Um, now with Remy and Sebastian, uh, it absolutely is confirmed that it was Opie that was just that easy. We watched his personality emerge. Um, he was observant, caring, loving, gentle. And he really loved being with kids. You know, one Sunday I remember, as I was preparing early for the Purple Line, the Children's Loop Ministry, um, I brought Opie along with me, and he was just getting into everything, um, just making a mess. Uh, but suddenly I heard Sarah Chenery call out from across the hall, Oliver, your girls are in here. And Opie turned his head and ran across the hall, and um, 
Nate and Kendra's daughter, Eliana, was there, and Rafe and uh, Sarah's daughter, Samira and Joy, were already playing. I don't know why that memory stays with me, but it just always brings a smile. Opie didn't love dancing as much as Remy does now, but um, one Wednesday evening, uh, shortly after he turned two and a half, uh, we were listening to some throwback 90s R&B, I think it was Tony Braxton or SWV or something. Um, we shot a video of Opie just dancing, um, just joyfully emulating probably my moves or something, and this beautiful radiant smile. That was the last video we had of Opie. As uh, early Friday morning, we found him unresponsive in bed. He had gone to be with Jesus. We took all the clinical and genetic tests that were available, but it was classified as sudden unexplained death of a child older than 12 months. A reason wouldn't have made a difference as that was the precious number of days that God had given us. Next month will be three years since that day, and Opie would have started kindergarten this coming fall. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me. According to, your soul, according to your word. There are many ways to feel significant loss and to experience grief, a loss of a job, a loss of relationship, death. Grief affects everybody differently, but it affects everybody. There are so many ways to grieve. It's not a straight line or a progression of stages. It's, there's no model or timeline. In fact, it's said that uh, it may take 18 to 24 months for recovery or healing to even begin. So in culture, there's often misinformation about grief and grieving. And as Christians, the word should be our foundation. I'm going to touch on two points today, and the first one being true Christianity embraces the reality of suffering. I'll focus on the two verses that Rafe had mentioned in Psalm chapter 119, verse 25 and verse 28. My soul clings to the dust. My soul melts away for sorrow. These are the author's vivid visualizations of suffering and grief that can be immobilizing, clinging to the ground, wanting to return to the dust in which we came wanting to no longer exist here on earth, a sense of purpose lost. For Kira and I, we poured ourselves out to care and steward Opie, and in an instant, a deep void was left. These are very real, very deep feelings and emotions, and we should not numb, desensitize, or distract ourselves from these reactions. In John chapter 11, Jesus told the disciples, Mary and Martha, that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. And yet when Lazarus died, in verse 35, Jesus wept. He saw them weeping. He saw them hurting. He saw them in their lonely despair, and he felt the overwhelming emotional significance 
of the loss, and he wept with them. Jesus embraced his full humanity. And so, it's okay to weep, to say you're not okay. And as much as people might say around you, you know, you're so strong through all this, or, um, you know, you can do this, uh, no, to say, you know, actually, I'm not strong enough, and, and I'm struggling. Grief and its overwhelming emotions can hit you at any time. Whether it's a week later running a mundane errand, or 18 months later while you're at work in the middle of a meeting. Allow yourself to feel the emotions and give yourself room to weep and grieve. The church doesn't always express this well. Sometimes it feels like we should have it all together and that by truly expressing grief or sorrow is somehow abnormal or unchristian. The reality is that very emotion and expression is most Christian. Jesus wept. Jesus was acquainted with grief. If you really want an example of suffering and trials, spend some time in Job. What's amazing is not all the various deep trials Job went through, but what God accomplished. Job suffered as he did so that God's people today might learn from his experiences on how to be patient in suffering and enduring to the end. What I think was so helpful for Kira and I while amidst grief and, while, and as we've sat with others in grief is in Job chapter 2, verse 11 and 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva when close family dies comes from this passage. It's a common Jewish practice today as family and friends gather to mourn with the immediate kin at their home. We're talking is minimal, and the requirement is to sit low and to listen. Listen to the mourners weeping, remembrance, and the processing of grief. This was incredibly encouraging and healing for Kira and I, the act of being still, processing, being in the suffering, not trying to stay busy or getting caught up in logistics or making any big changes or decisions. And what's been helpful for us as we come alongside others in grief was to realize that we are not there to fix them, take their minds off, or say, you know, it's been long enough. Uh, let's move on and do something. Like in Job, they sat with him, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that the suffering was very great. The second point today is true Christianity provides a purpose in suffering with hope. And as suffering can be very great and very painful, 
we go back to the word being our foundation. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It does not say not to grieve. We can be in deep, deep sorrow, but yet we have hope. We have hope in our life eternal, and we know that this life, as in James chapter 4, verse 14, is but a vapor that is here and vanishes away. Kira and I repeatedly meditated and prayed over these truths that are God-given times, short or long, here on earth, compared to eternity, would make no difference at all. And we long to be reunited again with Opie in the new heaven and the new earth. As in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 states, He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We go back to the second half of Psalm chapter 119, verse 25 and 28. My soul clings to the dust, but give me life according to your word. My soul melts away for sorrow, but strengthen me according to your word. As we're clinging and immobilized, we plead to God to give us life according to his word, to comfort and strengthen us according to his word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. The word comfort here isn't about sympathy or easing. It's more like the basis of the Latin word, with strength, in combination with the Greek word periklesios, which means to come alongside and help, which the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, the greatest comforter. What's important here is what comes after in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The outflow of strength, life, and encouragement we receive from the word. Now we are to be the paraclesios and come alongside others going through similar seasons of suffering and grief and help reinforce their foundations on God's word. There may be many questions floating around this topic of grief, but I'd like to focus on a couple as a takeaway. For those who are currently sitting in a season of grief, what good can come of this? We go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. It may be extremely difficult in a season of grief, but asking out to God, would you prepare my heart and show me where I can come alongside others, where I can bring the hope of Christ so that they do not grieve without hope. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to 
his purpose. This verse carries immense power that can produce great hope and perseverance in followers of Christ. But at the same time, it can be a dangerous weapon if this truth is pointed at a grieving person at the wrong time or in the wrong tone. But if a grieving person is helped to point this truth at the enemy, it can deliver a crushing blow. When Kira and I began wrestling with the questions of why us and why our son, to remembering the very truths of Romans chapter 3. Why not us and why not our son? We remember that all things can be redeemed by God. We remember that he sent his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to redeem those that believe so that we may have hope in eternal life. On this side of heaven, we may not get to see the good that comes out of our suffering, but we trust that God is doing a good work for his glory. For those who might not know how to respond, a question to consider, what can I do to come along others in grief? We see in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, being patient, persistent, and present alongside those who are grieving, interceding on their behalf, and being available to pray at all times, can really love and serve them well, letting them know that you are available whenever a grief attack blindsides them or when the enemy tries to overwhelm them. It can strengthen them when they need it the most. Another approach that was encouraging for Kira was having daily verses sent to her by a family member and her friends. She said it was like God providing daily manna, feeding her just enough to get out of bed and carry on with the day. We see in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Like the Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva, the act of sitting, listening, and weeping with those who grieve, as Jesus did, can love them well. More practically, there are many tangible ways to serve, dropping off a meal, just showing up and being a helping hand, running on errands. All that can help take the heavy burden off the daily tasks and can be a real blessing to them. And finally, for those that have not had a significant loss yet, a question to consider, what can I do to prepare for the inevitability of grief? Our Lord and Savior Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. We're called to be like Christ, and so we should not try to avoid it or keep it at arm's length. We should ask ourselves a prior question, what can I do to come alongside others in grief? And finally, we must also cling to the truth that there is no other foundation but God's word. When grief's heavy weight is felt on the knotted mesh of emotions, it is the words in Psalm 119 that become the deep reinforcing piers that keep the mesh from collapsing. So I would encourage us all to continue keeping the word, 
beholding the wondrous things of the word, revel in the revealing of the word, longing for the word, meditating on the word, and rejoicing in the great hope that the word brings. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this new and glorious day that we can gather as a church to worship you and rest in your good word. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that grieved in his full humanity, yet brought hope in his full divinity. May we continue to be more like Christ each and every day and continue to glorify you until the moment you call us home. In your precious name we pray.